Happy New Year, everyone. I just want to wish you a true Happy New Year. Uh, show of hands, how many of you have made New Year's resolutions? All right, that's what I thought. Delighted. Show of hands, how many of you are afraid to raise your hand because you, quite frankly, broke your New Year's resolution? Ah, huh, okay. That's kind of what I thought. Uh, every New Year comes when I asked if anyone made a resolution, only like four hands went up. Uh, it, it comes to the point where like New Year's resolution, right? And every new year, they say, it begins a new start, right? Every new week is a new start, right? So new year, we always have this new start, a fresh beginning. And so it comes to the point that, all right, happy new year, we make New Year's resolutions. But then, just from the answers that I uh, polled, it sometimes it becomes more, there's a sense of a despondency, right? Like, how many of you made resolutions? Uh, you know, a few people went up. Uh, but, you know, it comes to like, it is what it is, right? You're going to get what you're going to get. This is the year how it's going to be. I think, I think it's good. I think it's good to make resolutions, right? I think it's good that we resolve uh, to do something, right? And so for this year, for those of you, the four of you that made resolutions, uh, to be honest, I didn't make a resolution either, but, but this is my resolution. Uh, and for those who haven't, maybe you can take this as your resolution. Is to reading God's word more, right? To loving God more, right? And that is what I think, uh, that's what our time is going to be about. And I'm hoping that that's what we can see in 2024 for us as a church, as a body of believers, that we would come to love God more, uh, love his word more. And then in turn, we'll see what the effect is. As Nimi read to us in the scriptures, the wisdom that God will give to us and pour out upon us. Uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get, begin. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be present among us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray uh, that you would open up our eyes to see wondrous things uh, from your law. We also pray that you would give our tongues taste buds for the things of God so that you might taste as sweet as you are. Come awaken in ourselves a love for you and your word this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'm going to begin. I'm going to read you a quote uh, from a man named George Mueller. Many of you here may know George Mueller well, not like personally, but read of him. George Mueller was uh, in the 1800s, he was from the 1800s, and he ran an orphanage in England. And over the course of his lifetime, he took care of some 10,000 children. And what made George Mueller especially famous was that he ran this orphanage without asking for a single donation. Right? Year after year, he would trust God that God would provide and pray daily that God would meet their needs. And God did. Year after year, though he solicited no funds, funds would come in. They prayed that God would provide, and, and he did. So one morning, the kids and everyone sat down at the breakfast table, and they prayed that God would provide for that meal. They gave thanks for the meal. They said grace, and when they had said amen, they opened up their eyes, and there was nothing there. Then a knock came on the door, and it was a baker, and he showed up with enough bread for the entire orphanage, right? And it just so happened that very morning that the milkman's cart broke down outside of the orphanage, 
and there was fresh milk for everyone. That kind of thing, right? Those kind of stories. And it was said that George Mueller loved the Lord, served him all his life, was a spiritual Christian hero. And if you ask, what was the secret to his faith, his love and his devotion to God? Here was his practice. Mueller said this, For the first four years of my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole Bible with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about a hundred times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. They say that when he wrote this, he lived on for another 20 years or so. So you can only imagine how many times he ended up reading through the scriptures. But here's at the heart of this man's love and devotion. He said part of his daily practice was to read God's word. That's all 66 books, right? 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. And he did so from cover to cover. Now, what makes someone do that? What makes someone love God's word in such a way that they would do that? Well, that's the 1800s. Let me read you a post that I read recently. From a, it's from a retired pastor from Tennessee named Ray Ortland. It had this picture of his study with books open and a Bible, and it said, Ah, blitzing through the Bible on a three-month plan. I need it. The Bible deeply recenters me on the Lord. I am less frantic and distracted, more calm and cheerful, grateful. You see, Ray Ortland embarked. He's embarked on this three-month plan. And that got me curious, so I looked it up. And it turns out if you give yourself about 30 minutes to the Bible, give yourself 30 minutes to read the Bible, you would complete the entire Bible in three months. That's to say, if you started on Monday, January 1st, and you go all the way to the end of March, you would have read your entire Bible. Now, what makes someone do that? Give themselves to reading the Bible a hundred times. Give themselves to reading the Bible in three months. I say this because as Christians, we want to love God more, to grow closer to God, to grow in wisdom. Then we inevitably will have to love His Word more. Because God's word is the fuel that keeps the engine of love for God running. It's the kindling that keeps the fire of God hot. And so if we're going to be a church that prays that we would love God more, then we ought to be a church that prays that we would love his word more. Love his word the way George Mueller did. Love his word the way Ray Ortland does. And even more importantly, maybe love the way and love his word the way the writer of Psalm 119 does. That's the passage that Nimi read to us. You can turn to it. Uh, it's page 514 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, the Black Pew Bibles. Or you can pull it up on your app or it might be on the screen. Psalm 119. In Psalms, it's in the middle of your Bible. In Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter of your Bible. So I'm trying to preach a short sermon from the longest chapter in Scripture. And here's what you need to know about Psalm 119. Psalm 119, it's 176 verses. 
315 lines. It's longer as a chapter, as just a chapter as some whole books of the Bible. And of these 176 verses, essentially the whole thing is a psalm about God's word. The whole thing is a love song, a poem about scripture. And what you should know about the psalms is that it's, it's not a spontaneous utterance. Right? It's not like the uh, writer of Psalms just woke up one mo- morning and suddenly penned 176 verses. In fact, those who have studied it shows us that this psalm is very carefully constructed, right? very deliberately written. For example, it's sort of like an embroidery where every stitch is sewn deliberately, right? creating this beautiful piece of art. You'll notice in your English Bibles, if you look at it, over the sections of the psalm is a Hebrew letter. So it starts with Aleph, then Beth, then Gimel, and on it goes. What you should know in the original language, there's, uh, 20, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Right? And you'll find 22 stanzas in this psalm. Right? Each stanza corresponding to each uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza has eight verses, 22 stanzas with, each, with eight verses, each one of them coming back and corresponding to the, uh, the Hebrew letter. Let me break it down for you. Meaning, if it was in English, right? The first eight let, uh, letters of the stanza would begin with A. The second stanza, the first eight letters would begin with B. And so on it goes. Makes, yeah. uh, this is deliberately done. This is deliberately constructed, carefully orchestrated. And all of it is in praise of God and his word. Just listen to how the writer speaks of God's word. Let me give you a sampling of the psalm. In verse 14, it says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in all riches. Meaning, you know how giddy you'd be if you hit the lotto, right? Or maybe how giddy you'd be if you get a uh, keys to a brand new Porsche or a trip to Tahiti? None of, none of you? Okay. That's what he's saying. He's saying, every time I crack open my Bible, that's the way I get. My soul delights in the testimony of God as in all riches. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 147 and 48, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. He's literally saying, quite practically and quite simply, I love your word more than I love sleep. I would gladly give up five more minutes in bed if I could wake up before the day dawns so that I might consider your word and hope in your promises. I'm up while it's still dark, feeding my soul on your word. What makes someone talk like that? What makes someone read the Bible a hundred times? What makes someone read the Bible in three months? What makes someone say, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times? Who talks like that and why? Now, we can't go through the entire psalm because we'll be here all day. Uh, but what we want to do is we want to consider one section, this section that was read for us. We want to see, uh, and there's so much to point out here, 
I'm just going to point out one observation. What you'll see in this psalm, in this section, is that God's word has found its way into this man's heart, into the writer's heart. And if the Lord tarries, and if we're going to be around for the next 10, 15, 100 years, we want to be a people whose heart have been imprinted with God's word, right? That God's word saturates our hearts. Listen to how he begins in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear uh, the word meditation. Maybe you think of something Eastern, sitting in a yoga pose or humming a word. When I think of meditation, I go back to a sermon uh, that I heard when I was a kid. It was like the mid, mid-90s. It was the mid-90s, and I remember this preacher that came in Boston Market. Yes, food is my analogy. Boston Market had just come out, and this man spoke of the rotisserie chicken that rotates on the spit, right? And he started talking about meditation, and he said, you know how that chicken revolves over and over again? And it soaks in its own juices, and it's self-basting, and it turns over and over again. And spit was forming at the corner of his mouth and mind. And he spoke of meditation, of being we revolving in, returning to God's word. I don't know if that's a terrible illustration or not, or a good one, but it stuck in my heart and my head. And every time I think of meditating on God's word, that's what I think of, of chicken on a spit rotating over and over again. So now that's going to be stuck in your mind. In the morning, what you're trying to do is have God's word turn over and over in your mind, over and over again. And as the day lingers on, you're going to go back to that word, and you're going to turn it over and over again. You're going to let it marinate in your soul, and it's going to work deep down into your core. He says, my meditation is on your word all the day long. Or I think of it this way. It's, a, it's like a cow chewing cud. I literally looked this up. Another terrible illustration, I know, I'm sure. But what is it? A cow eats grass, but the first time it eats it, it's not enough to break it down. So I looked it up. It has a section of its stomach that brings it back up again and so that it can chew some more. And on that second feeding is when it's softened and small enough to work its way down. That's... God's word. Another terrible illustration, I know, I'm sure, but have it tattooed in your brain. You are to read God's word in the morning, and your heart is to bring that word back up and to work it over and over and to think on it. That verse that I read in the morning, I'm turning to it over and over again. I'm asking questions. I'm believing its promises. I'm working it down until it finds its way in my soul. Church, this is not academic. This is not merely cerebral. I love God's law, and I'm doing whatever it takes to have it come down into my heart. It's on your law that I meditate day and night. And how could he have done that? How could the writer of Psalm have done that? It's not like he he lives in 2024 where everyone has a copy of the scriptures or he can pull out a pocket skull. He would have had heard that scripture in the gathering of God's people, 
And he would have to have seen it or heard it with his ears and had to work that and to store that in his heart. He had memorized this word so that he can bring it up and meditate on it all the day long. He had labored to read God's word. Labored to read it. And study God's word and labored like you and I labor. There was no superpowers for him. Just like us, to memorize God's word and to have it stored in his heart. And in fact, what effect did this stored, read, memorized word have on the writer? He says it in verse 98 and following. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. You see, he's, he's not bragging, right? But he's saying God's word thought upon, read, studied, meditated, brings a wisdom that is beyond your years, has a way of showing you the paths of life that you would not have known in the folly of your youth. In fact, when I think of this, I can't help but think of and be reminded of Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus embodies Psalm 119, right? He's the embodiment of these verses. Who but Jesus lived this out perfectly? In fact, there's one story that comes to mind. Uh, when Jesus was just a boy, he's, he was 12 years old, and there's a story where his parents, because they're faithful Jews and they obeyed uh, the scriptures and raised him up, they went to uh, Jerusalem to the temple during Passover, so they took Jesus to the temple, right? We all know the story. And if you remember the story, they go home, and they go around and they can't find Jesus. So they ask their aunts or uncles or cousins or acquaintances, hey, have you seen Jesus? And they reply back, no, we haven't. We thought he was with you. And so Joseph and Mary, they had a day's journey back to Jerusalem in search of Jesus. And when they get back, where do they find him? They find him in the temple, right? Let me read you uh, Luke 2, verse 41, uh, 40 to 47. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know what Jesus embodied? Your law is on my heart, and my understanding surpasses that of my enemies, exceeds that of my teachers, goes beyond of those that are aged. Here's a 12-year-old boy who has been acquainted with the Scriptures in such a way that his wisdom has surpassed his teachers, right? Those that are aged and certainly surpasses his enemy. There is absolutely none like him. Now, if you want to go, Joel, that's Jesus, obviously. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, yes, it's Jesus. He's in a category all of his own. 
But you know one thing about Jesus? Is that he became human like us. And when he became a human being, he took on with it the limitations like us. So the embryo was not omniscient, right? And it seems that Jesus did grow in wisdom. You know, God never grows in wisdom, right? He knows all things. But in his humanity, Jesus grew in wisdom and in understanding. How? That means just like the psalmist in Psalm 119, and just like you and I, Jesus read his Bible. He reread his Bible. He studied his Bible. He thought about his Bible. And in turn, he turned it over in his mind and brought it up to his heart and memorized his Bible. And Jesus grew in wisdom so that he embodied, I have wisdom that surpasses my enemies and my teachers and my elders. Jesus is the one who can say, oh, how I love your law and how I meditate on it all the day. Would you hear that, New Hope? We love Jesus. Jesus loved his Bible. Jesus read his Bible. He studied his Bible. He believed his Bible. Jesus could literally quote from the Psalms and the Psalm would say, the Psalm of David, and Jesus would quote it and Jesus would literally say, the Holy Spirit said, now you may go, wait, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus know that human, fallible, sinful David, adultering, murdering David wrote the Psalm? And yet Jesus knows that the words of David were the words of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're here and you're going, I love Jesus, I can follow Jesus, I get Jesus, but I don't really like the Bible. I don't get parts of the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. I want, I want you to know I can understand that. Right? There are parts of the Bible that I don't understand, that I struggle with, that I don't get, but you don't have to feel that way. Because Jesus didn't feel that way about his Bible. Jesus believed the Bible. In fact, Jesus literally said, Heaven and earth will sooner pass away than one syllable, one dot, one iota would fall away from his word. Jesus loved his Bible. He believed his Bible. He read the Psalms as if they were the words of God. In fact, I just want to uh, have you see just how Bibeline Jesus was, would you hear this quote from a pastor that I came across? He says it better than I could, so, so hear this. He says, How Jesus came to a self-awareness of his Messiahship is one of the mysteries of the Incarnation. But when he was ready to burst on the scene, he did so, quoting Isaiah 61. Just listen to this litany of verses. When his family rejected him in Nazareth, he processed the pain by, by way of Isaiah 59. When he made his dialectical method of choice, that is, teaching parables, his decision was informed by Isaiah 6. When he def defended his Sabbath healings, he referenced 1 Samuel 21. When he, was pressed on, when he was pressed on God's intentions for marriage and sexuality, he immediately went to Genesis 1 and 2. When the Pharisees demanded signs, he responded with scriptures. When his table-flipping, temple-cleansing tirade was complete, he explained himself with Isaiah 56 in Jeremiah 7. When he wanted to flummox his opponents, he riddled them with Psalm 110. When he prepared his disciples for the imminent desertion on the Mount of Olives, he quoted Zechariah 3. When he was falsely tried in the middle of the night by envious and corrupt Sanhedrin, he affirmed his identity by marshalling Genesis 28. When he was minutes from death, from the bleakest moment of his life, with all the weight of every sin that the elect have ever committed, driven through his hands and feet, Psalm 22 burst from his soul 
and lips, giving him voice to his suffering. The blood that ran through Jesus' veins was a hundred proof Bible. Church, we want to love God's word. We want to love it more because we want to love Jesus more. You see, Jesus, he loved his Bible. He breathed his Bible. He read his Bible. So much so that you would have a hard time differentiating which words were original to Jesus and when and where he was quoting scripture. He loved the Bible. And because of that, the psalmist is also saying, not only has storing your word and meditating your word and memorizing your word has kept me on the right path and given me wisdom and all, more than all those around me, it also says it kept me from the wrong path. Listen to it. He says it earlier in verse 11. And he'll say it again in our passage. But verse 11, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says it again in verse 101. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. 104, he says, through, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Meaning, what the psalmist is saying is because I love your law, I have meditated on all day. And because your word is in my heart, I have this wisdom, this way of life that surpasses my enemy. And also, it has kept me from evil. Or a simpler way of saying it, it has often been said, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from the Bible, and the Bible will keep you from sin. Do you hear how he says it? I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In order to keep your word, I've kept my feet. In order to keep your word, I've kept my feet from every evil way. Through your precepts, I get understanding and I hate all false ways. And again, I want to say, who embodied it better than Jesus? Who but Jesus showed us how to store God's word so that you might not sin against God, that you may not make the decision that you end up regretting. Walk down the paths that you would hate yourself for walking down. You see, when Jesus was on this earth, he was tempted, the scriptures saying, just like us in every way, but yet he was without sin. Where you and I have yielded to that temptation time and time again, Jesus didn't. And how did Jesus fight temptation? Except your word I have stored in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So when Jesus was on the earth, temptation came. And one of the temptations was when Jesus was fasting for 40 days, he hadn't eaten or drank anything. And then the temptation comes. Don't wait on God, right? Don't rely on God to provide. So here's the temptation. Don't rely on God. He's not trustworthy. But how does Jesus respond to that moment? He pulls up from his heart in Deuteronomy. And he says to the tempter, Does it not say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? And then the temptation came a second time, and he pulled out God's word that he had stored in his heart. Then the temptation came a third time, and he pulled up God's word and he stored it in his heart over and over again. New Hope, who but Jesus embodies that God's word tucked in your heart can help you fight sin. So it was for the psalmist, 
So it was for Jesus. So it is for you and I, brothers and sisters. So when temptation comes to view that which we ought not to view or commit an action which we ought not to commit or say something that we ought not to say and every fiber in our body wants to go there and blood is pulsing through our veins and everything in our bodies want to say, to view, and to find pleasure in something that is not. It's in that moment that you are fighting temptation. That Psalm 16, 11 can come to your soul. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So what do you do in that moment? You're going to fight. Look, this path is not the path of life because you have made known to me the paths of life. There is ple- this pleasure is not infinite. It's not full. It's not lasting pleasure because at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. In you there is fullness of joy. So what do you do? You fight at that moment for your soul's sake and you do so using God's promises. Or you go to Matthew 5 and you remember... Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in that moment, everything in you wants to see a thing or do a thing or say a thing. But you go as much as these eyes want to see. I want to see God more. So who gets to see God? Those who are pure in heart. So help me, God, to fight now for purity that I might see you. There is something that these eyes want to see, but you are better. There is something that these, this mouth wants to say, but you are better. So how do you fight for the sake of your soul? Accept that I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or when you're afflicted and you want to go to any number of comforts to medicate yourself from the pain, it may be food, it may be shopping, whatever that thing is, that's your outlet to comfort yourself, to make you feel better. That's where you go back to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you fight in that moment for the sake of your soul, and you say, God, I'm not going to yield to this temporary fleeting pleasure, for this fleeting comfort. Because you have said there's a comfort that comes for those who are mourning. So I'm going to stay in the morning, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to hold on to your promises, because you have said you will give me a comfort that is superior to the one that I am tempted to run to. How should a man keep his way pure? But by guarding your word and doing so from his heart. Or, when you yield to temptation and now you've fallen, you've messed up, and now condemnation comes like a wave after wave reminding you and your soul, your enemy is accusing you. Your heart is accusing you. And that's when you need 1 John 3. It says, whenever, your heart con- whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. God is greater than your heart and He knows everything. Isn't that what you need to hear in that moment? Yes, my heart accuses me, and yes, the enemy accuses me, but over every other voice, God is greater. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. 
So what God has spoken to me right now is more right than what the enemy says over me. Church, when we feast on God's word like that, then we'll be able to say like the psalmist in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's when you and I have been saved by God, have been comforted by God's word, or consoled by the promises of God's word, that we too will be able to say, how sweet are your words to my taste. We could keep going, but here's what I want you to hear. For many of you, maybe not all of you, but for many of you, the Bible is precious to you. The Bible is dear to you. And I don't want you to hear Psalm 119 and just hear condemnation. Sure, there may be a gap, but Christian growth, all Christian growth begins with a gap. It begins with acknowledging the gap and saying, God, I am not this. I don't love your law. Your words are not sweet like honey to my taste. There is a gap. I acknowledge it. Help me. You'll find that in the Psalms that he'll pray that God would help him to love God's word. But I want you to hear, even for us, as weak as we are in the Bible, many of you, most of you, do love God's word and you do prize it. And I'll, I'll prove it to you. I heard one person say this, if I were to offer you, if I were to offer you $5 million to never again touch the Bible. I don't have $5 million. But if I were to offer you $5 million to never again touch the Bible, to never read it again, to never hear it again, to never see it again, to never have anyone talk about it again, preach it again, never think about it again, I'm telling you, there will be a great many of you that would say, no way. However weak your disciplines in Scripture reading may be, there's a great many of you that would say, you could offer me $5 million. You could offer me $50 million. I will not give up my Bible. You know why that is? It's because of verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Wouldn't you know, as weak as you are and, and I, there's a pulse in our soul that is right there with the writer that says, the law of your mouth has bettered this heart than a thousands of gold or silver pieces. So I know that for many of you, you do love God. You do love his word. We just need help to bring our practices to align with our beliefs. We need help to have our practices conform to our belief. That God's word is precious over and above everything else that we have. So in closing, I'm just going to give you three simple practical things. And then we're going to try something real brief. Charles, I didn't tell you this before, but it's going to be 60 seconds. Uh, let me give you three practical, simple things. Real simple. Have a plan, have a place, and pray. Have a plan, have a place, and pray. Have a place. That is simply today. One of the most godly and obedient things you could do is you're going to set apart a time and say, this is when and where I'm going to meet God in his word. You and I know that good intentions are good, but good intentions aren't enough. Right? And so a simple thing you're going to do is you're going to look at your calendar and you're going to go, when am I going to meet God in his word? And you're going to put it down, you're going to schedule it in your calendar, and it's going to be an appointment like any other appointment you have. 
Like, for instance, if you have a dinner outing with one of your friends, and I call, and I say, hey, would you like to hang out? Cancel it. No. What you're going to say is, hey, I would love to, but I have plans. Can we try another time? And just like that, you're going to figure out what works in your schedule, and you're going to set that time, and you're going to lock it in. That everything else will have to wait because this is my time with God. And you're going to make a plan. Many of our good intentions, we want to read the scripture. So we set up a time and a place, and now we go, this is a big book. How am I going to do it? Where do I start? What to do? And so, a plan. You can Google a plan. There are thousands of plans out there. But just to make it a little bit more convenient, the church has sent an email blast last night. I spoke to Jonathan. Everyone should have had it. I received it. Uh, sent an email blast with three different plans to choose from, right? One 90-day plan and two 366-day plans. It's a leap year. 366-day plans, right? One is the Bible project where you read it, but also gives you that drawing. Like, Justin never knows, but they can draw for you too. They're pretty good. But uh, it gives you, it's beautiful, right? It really does uh, animate the whole story. So there are some plans for you. Just to make it a little bit more convenient, we sent you the plans. You have a plan. Choose a plan. And third, you want to pray. You want to pray because the psalmist prays. Literally, he says, open my eyes to see the wondrous things in your law. You see, he needs God's help. He's literally saying, if you don't do something to my eyes, I'm going to open up this book and it's going to be dead print on a page. It's not going to do anything in my heart. I'm going to be bored. I'm not going to understand it. It's going to be bland. And so he'll literally say, give me understandings to your precepts so that I might keep your law. He'll literally pray also, incline my heart to your testimonies. And why does he say that? Because God, my heart can go bent this way. I need you to incline my heart back to your word. So you need to pray. No matter how much someone stands up here and talks to you, you need, you need God's spirit to awaken you, to awaken your heart to pray. So that's what we want to do. We want to lay a foundation for the next year by being a team that prays together and says, Lord, if you're going to give us 10 or 50 more years, we want to love your word more. And to that end, we're going to pray. Right? And so for the next 60 seconds, literally 60 seconds or so, we're going to pray together. You can huddle with the people around you, the people behind you or in front of you. You don't have to get up and walk. Just the people in your pews. You're just going to get together and just pray for 60 seconds. Just pray. And you'll see. And if you don't know what to pray, you'll see the scripture. Well, if we can, we can put it up there. Or if you have your Bibles, open it up. You'll see verses that says, Oh, how I love your law. And so you know what you can pray? You can say, God, I'm not there yet. Help me to love your law. You're going to see a verse that says, Your word is sweeter to my taste than honey. And you know what you're going to say? My word, my heart finds your word boring. Help me to find them sweet to my taste. So you use a psalm and you pray. You ask for wisdom. Ask the Lord to keep your heart from sin through his word. Use this as language to pray. So if we can just take a few seconds, 60 seconds or so, let's try to do that in this new year. 
It's going to be a little awkward, but uh, let's do that, and then I'll close us up. You can talk, Ian. God in heaven, thank you for hearing us tonight. Hear us now as we seek from you a love for your word. Do this for your glory and our joy. Be with us as we depart. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.